Section 48 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty Chris. The Talking Horse by John T. McIntyre. Up upon a fence across the way was posted a twenty-four sheet block stand, and along the top, in big red letters, it read, H. Wellington Sheldon Presents. Then followed the names of a half a dozen famous operatic stars. Bat Scranton sat regarding it silently for a long time, but after he had placed himself behind his third big cigar, he joined in the talk in fifteen years dubbin about this great and glorious said he i never run across a smoother piece of goods than old cap sheldon to see him now in his plug hat frock coat and white english whiskers you'd spot him as the main squeeze in a prosperous bank he's doing the froman stunt too and Bat nodded toward the poster. And he handles it with exceeding grace. When I see him after the curtain falls upon a bunch of Verity or Wagner stuff, come out and bow his thanks to a house full of the town's swellest, and throw out a little spiel with an aristocratic accent, I always think of the time when I first met him. Were any of you ever in Langtree, Ohio? Well, never take a chance on it if there's anywhere else to go. It's a tank town with a community of seven hundred of the tightest wides that ever sunk a dollar into the toe of a sock. There was a fair going on in the place, and I blew in there one September day my turn just then was taking orders for crayon portraits of rural gentlemen with horny hands and plenty of chin fringe i figure it out that about sixty per cent of the parlors in the middle west are adorned with one or more of these works of art but langtree ohio would not listen to the proposition for a moment as soon as they discovered that I wasn't giving the stuff away, they sort of lost interest in me and mine. So I began to study the timetable and kick off the preliminary dust of the berg, preparatory to seeking a new base of operations. As I made my way to the station, I caught my first glimpse of Cap Sheldon. He had a satchel hanging from around his neck and was winsomely wrapping ten-dollar notes up with small cylinders of soap and offering to sell them at one dollar a throw. "'How are they going?' says I. "'Not at all,' says he. "'There's nothing to it that I can see.' The breed and seed of Solomon himself must have camped down in this section. They are the wisest lot I ever saw herd together. Instead of chewing straws and leaning over fences after the customary and natural manner of ruminates, they pike around with a calm, cold-blooded sagacity that is truly awesome. It's me to pull out as soon as I can draw expenses. 
The next time Cap dawned upon my vision was a year afterward, down in Georgia. He was doing the ballyhoo oration in front of a sidewall circus in a mellifluous style that was just dragging the tar heels up to the entrance. It's a little better than the Ohio gig, says he, but I've seen better at that. I had a good-paying pharaoh outfit in Cincinnati since I met you, but the police got sore because I wouldn't cut the takings in what they considered the right place, so they closed me up. During the next five years, I met Cap in every section of the country and handling various propositions. In San Francisco, I caught him in the act of selling toy balloons on a street corner. In Chicago, he was disposing of old-line life insurance with considerable effect. At a county fair somewhere in Iowa, I ran across him as he gracefully manipulated the shells. But Cap did not break permanently into the show business until he coupled up with the McClintock in Milwaukee. Mac was an Irish Presbyterian and was proud of it. He came out of the black north and was the most acute harp mentally that I had ever had anything to do with. The chosen people are not noted for commercial density, but a Jew could enter Mac's presence attired in the height of fashion and leave it with only his shoestrings and a hazy recollection as to how the thing was done. <laughs> Now, when a team like Cap and Mac took to pulling together, there just naturally had to be something doing. They began with a small show under canvas, and their main card was a 20-foot boa constrictor, which they billed as Mighty Mardo. Then they had a boy with three legs, one of which they neglected to state was made of wood. Also, a blushing damsel with excess and bond point to the extent of 400 pounds. With this outfit, they campaigned for one season. In the fall, they bought a museum in St. Louis and settled themselves as impresarios. Now, in my numerous meetings with Cap, I had never thought to ask his name. So when I saw an ad in the Clippers stating that Sheldon and McClintock was in need of a good full-toned lecturer that doubled in brass, I just sat me down in my ignorance and dropped them a line. They sent me a ticket to where I was sidetracked up in Michigan, and I hurried down. Oh, it's you, is it? says Cap, as I piked into the 10 by 12 office and announced myself. Well, I've heard you throw a spiel and think you'll do, but I didn't know that you played brass. What's your instrument? Now, I had a faint sentiment from the beginning that this clause in their bill of requirements would get me into trouble, for I knew no more about band music than a he-goat knows about the Book of Common Prayer. I do the cymbals, says I. What? snorts Cap, rearing up. I thought you wrote that you played brass. Well, says I, ain't cymbals brass? It must have been my cold nerve that won Cap's regard, for he placed me as 
curio hall lecturer and advertising man at twenty a week. The Museum of Sheldon and McClintock proved to be a great notch. More fake freaks were thought out, worked up, and exhibited during the course of that winter season than I would care to count. Then there was a small theater attached in which they put on very bad specialties, and where painful-voiced young men and women warbled sentimental ballads about their childhood homes and stuff of that character. These got about $10 a week and had to do about 30 turns a day. They lived in their makeup and got so accustomed to grease paint before the end of their engagements that they felt only half-dressed without it. The trick made money, and in about a year McClintock cut loose and went into a patent-promoting scheme. Shortly afterward, the first continuous house was opened in St. Louis, and the novelty of the thing was a body blow to Cap. He made a good fight, but lost money every day, and at last he imparted to me in confidence that if business did not improve, he could see himself getting out of the shells and limbering up on them preparatory to going out and facing the world once more. The bank will stand for $300,000 worth more of my checks, says he, and after they're used up, I'm done. He began to cut down expenses with the reckless energy of a man who saw the poor house looming ahead for him. The result was that his bad shows grew worse, and the attendance wasn't enough to dust off the seats. The biggest item of expense about the place was Mighty Mardo, the boa constrictor. His diet was live rabbits, and a 20-foot snake with a body as thick as a four-inch pipe can dispose of good and plenty of them when he takes the notion. Cap began to feed him live rats, and the Mighty One soon began to show the effects of it. "'He'll die on you,' says I to Cap one day." Let em, says he. The rabbits stay cut out. One day a fellow came along with a high-schooled horse that he wanted to sell. He had more use for ready money just then than he had for the nag, so he offered to put it in cheap. But Cap waved him away. I'll need the money to buy meals with before long, says he to the fellow, so tempt me not to my going hungry. This little incident seemed to make the old man feel bad. He locked himself up in the office for four hours or so, communing with his inner self. But when he came out, he was looking bright and gay. Say, says he, I've changed my mind and just bought that horse. I didn't see the man come back, says I. I made the deal over the phone, says Cap. Then he pushes a thick wad of penciled stuff at me. Here's some truck I want you to take over to the printing house, he goes on. When it's out and up and the brute will be well known. I takes a look over the copy and my hat was lifted two inches straight off my head. The first one read something like this. Admiral, the talking horse. Looks like a human being, vocal organs developed like those of a man. 
hear him sing the bass solo down in the depths. Ten thousand dollars to anyone proving these claims fake in the slightest degree. Reads good, don't it? asked Cap, sort of beaming through his nose pinces. But give a look at the others. The next one was as bad as the first. Admiral, the horse who recites the Declaration of Independence in a deep bass voice and with perfect enunciation. I didn't hear the fellow say the skate could do that kind of stuff, says I, just a bit dazed after looking over a lot more of it. He only handed it to me as a sort of last card, says Cap, and that's what made me change my mind about buying him. Get 5,012 sheets in yellow and red, 10,003 sheets, 15,000 block one sheets with cut of the horse, and you can place an order for as many black and white dodges as they can turn out between this and the end of the week. It's a big card, and we're going into it up to our eyebrows. If I had had time to consider anything but hustling, I might have thought the thing was a fake. But it was the old man's game, and I left him to do the worrying. I threw rush orders into the printers, and soon had the presses banging away on the stuff desired. Next day, Cap started a four-inch double-column notice in every paper in town. I hired an army of distributors and began to put out the Dodgers as they came hot off the bat. Then I got a couple of guinea bands, put them in open wagons, done up with painted muslin announcements, and sent them forth to tear off the melody and otherwise delight the eye and ear of the town. As the big stuff came off the press, it was slapped up on every blank wall and fence in the city that wasn't under guard. And when the job was finished, St. Louis fairly glared with it. If there was a person who hadn't heard of the talking horse by the end of the week, they must have been deaf, dead, or in jail. The nag was to make his first appearance on Monday, and the last sheet of paper had been put up and the last handbill disposed of by Saturday afternoon. "'How does she look?' says Cap to me when I came in. "'Great!' says I. "'If they ain't tearing the place down to get in on Monday, why, my bump of prophecy has a dent in it.' Let em come, says Cap, looking very much tickled. We need the money, and we ain't turning nobody away. The horse has reached town and will be brought around tomorrow morning, so you make it a point to be on hand to let it and the handler in. I was around bright and early on Sunday morning, and along comes the horse. He was got up in the swellest horse stuff I ever saw beaded blankets of plush and silk with his name embroidered on them and all kinds of goods the handler was a husky with one lamp and a bad one at that where do i put him says he on the top floor says i we've got planks on the stairs and a rigging fixed to haul him up by 
when we got him safely landed and the glad coverings off i looked him over his intellect must sort of tell on him don't it asks i why he is under some weight says the fellow in charge he don't look over bright to me i goes on he never does on sundays the husky comes back it's sort of a, an off day with him then i went out to lunch and stayed about two hours when i got back i found a gang of cops and things buzzing all over the place cap was in the office his plug hat on the back of his head and a cigar in his mouth what's the trouble says i had a hell of a time around here says he i was called up on the phone and got down as soon as i could just take an observation of that fellow over there the fellow referred to was the handler of the talking horse his left arm was done up in splints and bandaged from fingertips to shoulder and he had a clump of reporters around him about six feet thick what hit him asks i about everything on the top floor says cap solemnly the talking horse is dead mighty mardo broke out of his showcase about an hour ago took a couple of half hitches around the admiral and crushed him to death go away says i sure thing says cap come upstairs and have a look we went up and did so the place was a wreck the horse was the deadest i ever saw and the constrictor was still twined about him why the snakes passed out too says i cap folds his hands meekly across his breast in a resigned sort of way yes he says he too was killed in the dreadful struggle he must have went straight for the admiral as soon as he got loose the handler was down in the office alone when the uproar started he came jumping upstairs six steps to the jump and when he sees mardo putting in that bunch of body holds on his intelligent charge why he took a hand the result was a dead snake for me and a crippled wing for him when i got here doc forbes was tying him up cap goes on rather sorrowful like and when i sees what happened i know that i'm a ruined man so i phones for the police and reporters to come down and view my finish from the way he talked i expected to see him carted home before the hour was up but he wasn't as soon as the newspaper fellows cleared out with all the facts of the case in their notebooks cap sends for a fellow to put him right to work fixing up the horse and snake so's they'll keep and then lays them out next morning the newspapers slopped over with scare headlines telling of the battle according to their way of looking at it the struggles in the arena of old rome were scared to death in comparison and modern times did not come anywhere near showing a parallel of the combat between the terrible constrictor and the horse with the human voice
The result of this was that when the time came to open the doors at noon, we had to have a squad of police to keep the mob from blocking traffic for squares around. Cap had changed and doubled the size of his ads overnight. The horse was done up in a big black coffin covered with flowers and a lid with his name, age, and wonderful accomplishment engraved upon a plate stood beside him. The remains of mighty Mardo, stuffed with baled hay and excelsior, were embracing the dead admiral with monster coils, and the crowd came, gazed and marveled, then they went forth to tell their friends that they might come and do likewise. For weeks the corn came into the box like a spring freshet in the hill country, and Cat must have kept the bank working after hours. At any rate, he sat around and smoked with a smile so angelic that, to look at him, one wondered how he could wear it and not drift away into the ethereal blue. It was a good month before the thing lost its pulling power, and when it stopped, Cap had planted the stake that boosted him into the company he now keeps and set him to handling voices that cost thousands of simoleons an hour. When all was over, I found time to take the husky with the damaged fin out and throw a few drinks into him. Then he told me the whole story. The old man didn't think you could do the thing justice if you were wise, says he, so he kept you out. This ain't the horse the fellow offered to sell him at all. He bought it at a bazaar for ten dollars the day before I brought it around. When you went out for lunch, Cap, he comes in. We done for the plug in a minute, and as mighty Mardo was all but gone on account of his rat diet, we finished him, too. Then we wrecked the place up some, took a couple of turns about the horse with Mardo, called in Doc Forbes, who stood in to fix up the fictitious fracture, and then rung in the show. Yes, observed Bat thoughtfully after a pause. I've made up my mind that H. Wellington Sheldon is a wise plug. End of The Talking Horse Reading by Marty Criss